the home of common sense, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We've reached the end of another tumultuous week, it has to be said, and Friday uh, is by no means any quieter than any other day. Uh, we've had the incredible revelations uh, from Isabel Oakeshott and Daily Telegraph um, about ha- Matt Hancock, lockdown, the lockdown files. We've got more revelations today. Um, front page headline on the Telegraph today, we are going to have to get heavy with the police. That is a direct quote from Matt Hancock, uh, the man who is still... Uh, not actually got it. He still doesn't actually realise that everybody thinks that he is a complete and utter numpty at the very least, uh, and possibly even worse than that, uh, somebody who ought to be investigated by the police uh, for some of the stuff that he got up to. But this morning, we are going to be talking to Richard Tice, um, who is, of course, um, very close to Isabel Oakeshott, and will be able to tell us how she's been doing, but also the fact that this is having a bigger effect probably than any political story uh, that I've seen, I think, since the Brexit referendum. I'm going to say that right now because I think this is going to have large ramifications for government all over the place. Uh, To wit, um, you've got Sue Gray, a woman whose uh, report is still going on, by the way, which I didn't even realise. Apparently her report's still going on into uh, Partygate down at Downing Street. There might be some revelations coming from that this very morning, even as we're on the air. Uh, But she's decided that uh, as the incredibly neutral civil servant that she is, uh, she's joining the Labour Party. Brilliant. Well done, Sue. Thank you very much indeed. That's proving everything that we've always said has been true. We're also going to talk about the Manchester Arena bombing. Unbelievable testimony yesterday from some of the families of those who were killed. And it looks as though, once again, MI5, which has become more woke uh, than Disneyland, uh, is now not actually protecting the good people of this country. We'll talk about that as well. 0344 499 1000. Jamie Jenkins joins us in a little while. Uh, also to look over some of these COVID regulations that were put in place for no good reason whatsoever. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Uh, this is, of course, Talk TV. Let's get on with it. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is a Friday. It is a uh, relatively gloomy looking day. Very cold, very chilly. Uh, Pretty chilly, I would imagine, in Matt Hancock's household, uh, where his entire world seems to have collapsed around him. It was only two or three days ago that he formed a TV company. I've got a couple of ideas for a documentary you could do. Uh, Richard Tice is here. Very good morning to you. Uh, good morning uh, to you, Mike. I have to Mike. tell you that Isabel Oakeshott, once again trending in the United Kingdom, <laughs> according to my Twitter feed. Um, what a week it's It been. has been quite a week. And obviously, we knew for some time that this was going to be the week. Mm. And what I can reveal is that actually... Uh, the whole story was delayed 24 hours, a bit like sort of D-Day. Mm. This time it wasn't because of the weather, it was because of the Northern Ireland Protocol. We might yes. touch on that. So it was due to come out Monday night, uh, splash on Tuesday morning, that was delayed. But yes, it has been something of a whirlwind. Mm. And uh, there's just so much now. The snowball of stories that are coming out, you see in the papers today in the Telegraph, the stories about the police, uh, and some remarkable testimony. And... More and more people now are having the confidence and high-profile people to come out and say, actually, they also had deep, deep misgivings, Mm. but for various reasons, they couldn't say so at the time. And and the most extraordinary on the front page of The Telegraph is the sister of the former prime minister, one Rachel Johnson, who actually, who knew that she was a massive lockdown sceptic? The headline, uh, you know, she felt that her mother, who was in a care home, it was like a prison. And she speaks for so many. Mm. And in a sense... That's that's really why Isabel made the decision mm. to do this, yeah. because it is without question overwhelmingly in the public interest. Mm. 
I mean, these messages, three times the size of the Bible. Yeah. So it, it's, and you could sort of understand that. There's this a lot is, going sorry, on. just to interrupt you, what Matt Hancock refers to as a partial um, re- record of events. Yes. Uh, but it's bigger than the Bible. It's three it's times, partial, is it? it's, no, it's three times the size of the Bible. And it essentially says, look, we all understand there was a lot going on at the time. But we all remember those critical words, we're following the science. Mm. Well, there's two things to that. First of all, there's no such thing as the science. There are different scientists with different opinions, and that's how you progress science, by challenging each other. And what became absolutely clear, first of all, they only looked at one side of scientific opinion. They didn't listen to people like Carl Hennigan. This becomes absolutely brilliant. But what all these revelations show is actually they weren't even following the advice that they were getting. No. Much of well, it was... they were choosing which bits of advice to follow, weren't they? I mean, when we see this front page head on the Telegraph today, and we'll be seeing, as we as we are on this morning, you'll see some of the, um, the, the exchanges on WhatsApp, we are going to have to get heavy with the police. And a really uh, sort of, what I would call, very unpleasant ter- tone to some of the text messages from the advisers, saying things like, you know, can we lock Nigel Farage up? You know, things being said about Piers Morgan, we lock him up. I mean, you know, they're just laughing about it. Well, exactly. And what I say is, what on earth were they doing in the middle of this huge crisis, focusing on individuals? Mm. They should have been focusing on making the right decisions, accepting that where they've got them wrong, tweak it, nudge it, change it, rather than, oh, let's see if we can describe Nigel Farage as a pub hooligan and lock him up. Or... Let's celebrate and have a party, even though there were no parties allowed at the time, because Piers Morgan's just lost yeah. his job. I and mean, let's not stuff. forget as well that day one uh, and the story about care homes and, and the fact that uh, there was no real <clears throat> you know, sense applied to any of that, you know, because we shouldn't let them get away with that, because these stories are going to come and go over and over again. But the care homes one is the one that cost the most lives, obviously. Uh, without question. And uh, there are multiple reasons for that. Uh, but their inability to to focus on the really important on care homes, uh, on the testing, his absolute obsession with his testing target of 100,000 people. But what's also remarkable, uh, I I can tell you, Mike, is the support that Isabella's had from ordinary members of the public, which is is snowballing as every hour comes forward via a website, various other ways of of getting in touch, people stopping her on the street, um, from just from all walks of life. And some of the stories are, are truly heartbreaking. But isn't it amazing, right? People like Nick Robinson of the BBC, and I'm going to out him uh, as a man who shouldn't even be in a job at this point as a journalist, who has a go at her for supposedly breaching an NDA. You know, these are the same people who are absolutely castigating anyone who asks somebody to sign an NDA. You know, if you were um, an actress or if you were an employee of a company, they would be saying to you, oh, but they made you sign an NDA. You know, as soon as she breaches an NDA in order to publicise something which is very much in the public interest, as always has been, right, they start castigating it, her. It is interesting. Such that, double standards. Well, what the mainstream, what some of those media organisations are not doing is focusing on, is it or isn't it in the overwhelming public interest? And it clearly is. Of course. And, and without, no question. without an absolute shadow of doubt, if any of them had got this... Uh, got this treasure trove of data they would absolutely have said it's overwhelmingly in the public interest so um it is uh, but they don't actually do any journalism anymore at the bbc so they wouldn't know how to get it or what to do with it if they did get it yeah and and look the the reality is that uh, the the good news about everything that is being revealed and there's there's obviously a lot more to come over the coming days is that it is going to change the course of history it's going to make sure that most importantly of all, 
people understand that you can't always trust what uh, what the government are telling you, despite their their huge protestations to the contrary. And we really need to focus on well, okay, what's the what's the positive benefits that come from it? Well, the first major thing is this public inquiry, yeah. which today's Telegraph reveals they've already committed £116 million mm. on sometimes five-year contracts to IT firms, to legal firms. Mm. So you know government's always overspent. So we talk about five years. Uh, the judge, Baroness Hallett, I'm sure she's an excellent, high-qualified judge, she said that suggestions it was going to take years and years were wrong. Well, mm. hang on. This is the proof that she's already wrong. Yes. Because it's going to well, take... Well, also, her explanation of how it wasn't going to take uh, years and years and years was that we will be reporting um, as soon as we can. There's not exactly a time there's, on that. There's there? no deadline to it. It's totally unacceptable. I just remind people, the, the Savile inquiry into Bloody Sunday took 10 years. Mm. The Chilcot inquiry into Iraq took seven years. Right. This will be way longer than that. It's totally unacceptable. And both Here's, of them really didn't find anything out. Yeah, and... and and by that time, in a sense, the, the story's done. It's so long ago. We need to know. Sweden yeah. reported a year ago. I talked about this uh, ad nauseum. Mm. Um, we need to know this year. I was delighted that in the House of Commons, Keir Starmer picked this up on, on Wednesday and yeah. said we should get the report by the end of this year. The response from the Prime Minister was utterly, woefully pathetic in saying they've got the right resources and the right terms of reference, we should let them get on with it. No, Prime Minister, people want to know the answers, we want to know them promptly, and if the terms of reference aren't good enough, change the terms of reference. Exactly. Because the government set the terms of reference in the first place, and the people, and what we're absolutely mm. seeing now, the people want to know the answers. Yeah. And the, the fury and anger, I think, is, is rising. Uh, and when people understand well, because what's happened here, uh, basically, and what Isabel has done brilliantly, is exposed the heart of government to the public gaze, which we didn't really see, which we didn't know, because for the best part of the last, I would say, couple of decades, ministers, governments have been attempting to distance themselves from us in a way uh, which makes them unaccountable, yeah. in a way which makes them look as if they decide what we live like, we, we have to do what we're told, and they will tell us whether or not we're doing the right thing. Well, that's not a government I want. That's not the government I would have ever voted for. You know, they work for us, they should be accountable to us, and they should be happy to have transparency and the public gaze looking in on them and checking out what they're doing. And, and the reality is, we just want, we want a government to perform on behalf of the people. Yeah. And in a sense, no one really wants to pay taxes, but you're much happier to pay your share of tax if you know it's going to be spent well, promptly, efficiently. And there's no way a public inquiry that will probably end up spending nearer 500 million quid if they've already committed 116. Mm. You know what happens to, oh, yeah. to government budgets and, and times. So this will be hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds years down the track. That's not acceptable. That's not good enough. And that's part of the agenda that we're trying to get changed. I think it's really, really important. It really is really important. We've got lots of other things to talk about as well. So we'll take a little short break. Richard Tice is here. We'll take your calls, of course, as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. There's so much to discuss this morning. Morning. I don't think three hours is enough. I might have to tell Collins not to bother coming in and do six. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV with you all the way through until one o'clock, of course. Plank of the Week tonight at seven. Matt Hancock may feature uh, in that particular show. You might not be surprised to know. Richard Tice is here. Richard, a couple of front pages as well to mention, which don't have um, the um, the lockdown file story on. Front page of the Daily Mail. Is this proof the Partygate probe was a Labour plot? So this is on the news that um, Sue Gray, who led the investigation uh, over Boris Johnson and Cakegate, whatever you may want, wish to call it, has decided to join the Labour Party. I mean, imagine that, a civil servant, a top civil servant, being a left-winger. It's absolutely extraordinary. It really is. And uh, I think people were, look, there was, in a sense, you had the Prime Minister of the time, Boris Johnson, saying that Sue Gray's uh, was a person of impeccable, unimpeachable Mm. impartiality. Uh, But now, actually, it appears that um, she did have quite a lot of uh, partiality and and bias, because she's very happy to go and work for uh, for the the the, um, the leader of the opposition, as a, sort of as a top advisor, as as his chief of staff, right. and you know this basically, uh, and she resigned with immediate effect. Yes. Just imagine that. So the chaos of presumably she's got a role that is a useful role within uh, the civil servants service. Well, Normally there'll be a to notice get to the top of it, right? And they obviously not managed to work but out. She's she, she's quit with immediate effect. Mm. I think that uh, that is bad in itself, and there's then possibly only a three month period. Uh, where she has to wait before joining the Labour Party. Mm. And yeah, I think this absolutely requires investigation. It does appear the Prime Minister could potentially block this appointment. Just imagine if this was the other way around. You can imagine the howls mm. and squeals that would be coming from the Labour Party. Yes. Uh, I, I think that this is a, a big misstep by uh, Keir Starmer. There are real yes. questions to ask as to when was she first contacted mm. by anybody in the Labour Party... Yeah. With a view to taking this job, yeah. Because and again, this, this is this is why another amazing thing that, that has that has sort of and, and should be the result of uh, Isabel Oakeshott's uh, investigation is we need to see all these government communications, right? Because in the end, um, the communications of politicians uh, should not be done on a WhatsApp group. They should be done in a way like they do in America, where we can see them all. At, which, of course, is subject to freedom of information. Yeah. But WhatsApp groups are not subject to freedom of information, mm. and uh, that's just uh, that, that's just part of the process. But this really is. I, I think it's. I, I think it's actually pretty shocking. If she had been uh, appointed as part of a a transition process, which which is what when there's expected to be a change of government, quite properly, the civil service uh, work with the potential incoming alternative government uh, to let them know how things work, what goes on, what needs to be done when. That's all understandable. That's a sort of a natural transition process. This is wholly different. This is his chief of staff. This is a serious political appointment. It's not like becoming shadow cabinet secretary mm. to advise on process. Right. This is a, a major political appointment about how the Labour Party gets elected right. as the next and government. also, I mean, who knows what sort of ethics this woman has? How, how do we know what she's going to tell Keir Starmer about stuff, perhaps in in reports that didn't come out? Who knows? Uh, I, I think it's uh, it, it's it's utterly extraordinary, and it highlights just the level of hypocrisy. Yeah, and I think people will draw their own conclusions. I really do. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be at all surprised, actually, if 
Prime Minister Sunak potentially could delay the appointment for up to two years, okay. which obviously would take one way beyond the expected date of the mm. next general election, which mm. it has to be done by January 25, but is expected yeah. in autumn 24. So let's wait and see. Uh, I think that uh, that will be very, very yeah. interesting. While we're on the subject of the Prime Minister, I should say, breaking news, you might have heard at the top of the hour uh, that the UK energy price guarantee is going to remain for another three months. Interesting, because Rishi Sunak said uh, when he was in Belfast, and I did ask the question then if this was a breaking news story that he hadn't told anyone, because he said, we're going to continue to support people. And I'm going, well, no, you're not, because you've already said you're going to stop it. But it turns out, no, they're not stopping it. They're keeping it going. But let's not forget, it's our money that's well, being used of, of course to subsidise us. Uh, of course, you know. uh, and uh, it's it's very political. Uh, it's the right decision, probably. It's interesting that they've just said for three months. It's almost sort of like the drip, drip, drip. But fundamentally, let's not forget this is all because of the failed energy policies of this government over the last decade yeah. or more. The gas price has absolutely plummeted back yes. to where it was in early 2021. Mm. So prices should be coming way, way down. But yeah. guess what? They're not. No. Why? Because it's all about the cost of the renewable energy mm. uh, drive uh, because of net zero. So people should be under no illusion. Unfortunately, prices won't drop back down because of this extra cost. I will continue well, to bang that drum. Isn't it funny that they said just last week, I think it was, that the price cap was going to go um, down because people would be spending less money. But actually, the retail price in your pocket would go up. Yeah. I mean, it's... it's you're going to go, sorry? It's, 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 it's hard to compute, but let's not forget... The two and a half thousand sort of average cap for an average household with average use is still well over double what it was 15 months ago. Well yeah. over double. Yeah. So it's still off the dial, even though the gas price is now yeah. back to 2021. People need to really think about that, they do. understand it and appreciate they do. it. And just before we move on to the story on the front of the Sun, which is the Manchester bombing inquiry. Incredible. Uh, another shocking, shocking story about the way the MI5 uh, operations uh, have been going in the security of this country. Um, let me just ask you about Belfast and, and the Windsor Accord yes. and the Windsor Agreement, because I know you've been tweeting about it. Obviously, you've spoken about it, I'm sure, uh, elsewhere. But since yeah, you're look, here, look, look, what, the, what's it, your this is, I, I put a video out yesterday, having looked at the detail of this, and sometimes you have to look at the other mm. side of the coin, which is, what are the EU saying yeah. about this in their documents? Yeah. Well, I, isn't it? I read their documents, right. and guess what? It's completely yeah. different to what Prime Minister Sunak said. Mm. The truth is, he's actually, he's the Prime Minister is guilty of mis-selling, mm. because uh, the reality is, this Windsor framework, uh, it's not all it's cracked up to be. Yes, there will be some day-to-day -day improvements, but the reality is, mm. Northern Ireland is still subject to a lot of EU laws, EU standards yeah. on many goods. It's still subject to the ECJ. And as for this storm on break, uh, I mean, that's the sort of thing that you would expect a dodgy second-hand car sales. Yes. Uh, it's a device that even if you pulled it, yeah. it would never, ever work. Yeah. So, look. It's like it, one of those um, cords on the underground, isn't it? That you, I always used to think when I was a schoolboy, I wonder what would happen if I pulled that. <laughs> and the answer is probably nothing. Uh, best not to try. But, um, uh, no, uh, you know, this is a, a classic case of mis-selling. And uh, we, I've, I've come out and said that it, uh, it doesn't work. Lord Frost has expressed his... Uh, his concerns about it, yeah. uh, as has Boris Johnson, although obviously that's uh, he's looking after number one. Yes. And we'll see what the DUP say mm. in due course. Mm. But my hunch is that they will express their deep, deep misgivings yeah. about it. And I it. think also that some of the people who are saying it's a good thing uh, are a pretty good reason not to like it, yeah. aren't they? The, the reason that the EU have conceded anything at all is because they reckon that actually Sunak's not going to cut taxes or mm. regulations 
and in 20 months' time, you'll have a Labour Party that's trying to cosy up to them. But uh, We shall see. With Sue Gray on board as well. Finally, let's just talk about this uh, terrible, terrible story. I listened yesterday to Ian Collins' show because he had um, uh, live reports coming in from Manchester as the inquiry was being um, uh, sort of publicised, if you like. But the security blunders, the families who spoke yesterday, we're going to play some of that out later on. Um, just a tragic, terrible thing that happened that could have been prevented if only MI5 had done their job. It's, it, it's a tragedy at so many multiple levels. Mm. And look, we appreciate the security services have got a difficult job. But it, it, the evidence that has come out has shown that on, on numerous occasions, they were made aware of the potential risks of Abadi and uh, they missed it. And that's, that is an absolute tragedy. But again, it's multiple failures at various part of the public services. We're obviously all upset and, and, and saddened about that. I'm actually steaming mad mm. about the woeful failures of the emergency services that's already been reported yeah. that would have saved people's lives. Yeah. And because of varying, frankly, almost like woke-like political correctness, yeah. the emergency services, mm. which are there to move at emergency urgent speed, yes. they didn't. Well, they let down the victims of that, mm. uh, of that absolute horror show. Yes. And we have to be brave enough to hold these people to account. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, I remember the night that it happened. I was doing a show uh, late at night for Talk Sport uh, back then. And even the way that the emergency services respond to these things nowadays is wrong. Because we were being told as a news organisation, oh, there has been an event at Manchester Arena. Uh, We advised people to stay away. They didn't say there's been a bomb which has gone off uh, because some terrorist has blown himself up, you know which they must have known as soon as they got there, but they wouldn't say that. And for hours and hours and hours, nobody knew well, what the so-called incident was. Well, one of the reasons was actually that most emergency services didn't get there yeah. because they, they deliberately held back. They were away. way, way back yeah. and had not a clue what was going yeah. on. And they weren't doing their fundamental mm. job, which is to mm. go and to try and, uh, and help save lives. But is there not also something to be said for um, what we know about MI5 and how woke MI5 has become and how they've been spending all their time sort of sending internal emails to each other um, about how to address each other and how they've all had to have pronouns put at the bottom of the emails and how they've all had to have these, you know, seminars uh, on how to treat people inclusivity-wise. I mean, you know, just do it's, your bloody job. Just do your job, please. And we've seen it. All, it's like back to these messages. Yeah. What you're seeing here is the public sector focusing on completely the wrong thing and wasting time, effort, thoughts, money and resources mm. on irrelevant stuff when actually the public who pay the bills just want you to do your job yeah. promptly, efficiently, effectively, on our behalf, please. Exactly. I don't think it's asking too much. Um, thank you very much. We'll be talking to Jamie Jenkins um, later on uh, in the show, and he'll be talking us through some of the stuff that we've been saying this morning already. But, Richard, mon- uh, Sunday coming up. What have you Sunday sermon. Uh, we'll be, uh, look, there's so much coming out mm. of all of these revelations. You're we'll going to look on that. the show as well. Well, I'll, I'll, be <laughs> I'll have a word. <laughs> I'll talk about myself on the show, but um, no, there'll be uh, it'll be a blockbuster Sunday sermon. Have no doubt about that. Do not miss it. Excellent stuff. Richard Tice back at Sunday at 10 o'clock. Don't miss that. We've got more for you coming up. Uh, We're going to be talking about the Manchester Arena bomb, uh, the disgrace of the MI5 uh, failings. And also, as Richard said, uh, the emergency services. What on earth were they thinking? This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Coming up, Holly Hudson is going to be joining us, Talk TV's reporter. She's live outside Manchester Crown Court, of course. Uh, Harry Miller will talk to us as well about the terrible, terrible problem 
of what the emergency services and the security services did as well. Uh, absolutely tragic stuff, but we'll be talking about that uh, a little bit later on as well. 0344 499 Will Geddes will join us as well. Um, but let's just, before we go anywhere else, talk about uh, Boris Johnson, because uh, Richard Tice mentioned Boris Johnson uh, in his clip um, yesterday. Uh, Boris Johnson was talking about, of course, uh, Rishi Sunak and the... Uh, the framework, uh, the Windsor framework of all things. Let's have a look at it. I'm going to find it very difficult to vote for something myself, because uh, something like this myself, because I believed that we should have done something different, uh, no matter how much plaster came off the ceiling in Brussels. And I hope that it will work. And I also hope that if it doesn't work, we will have the guts to deploy that bill again, because I've no, no doubt at all that that was what brought the EU to, to negotiate, seriously. And that's former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. They're talking about his misgivings um, about the uh, Windsor Accord, the Windsor Framework. Uh, he's not sure uh, that it's worth uh, the paper it's written on. So we'll talk some more about that coming up a little bit later on. Right now, though, let's go live uh, to Manchester Crown Court. Holly Hudson, Talk TV's very own reporter, is there. Holly, very good morning to you. Good morning, T. Mike. It was a very harrowing day yesterday, listening to those statements from the families and from their representatives, the lawyers, about the failings of not only the um, security services, but also of the emergency services as well. Um, the MI5 chief is saying he's profoundly sorry. Um, what's, um, what's going on up there today? Well, I've actually just spoken to one of the lawyers for the families who said that the biggest thing that they wanted to achieve was real change. So they will all be keeping an eye on the progress of the recommendations that were made by the chair of the inquiry, Sir John Saunders, yesterday, uh, and also trying to learn as much as they can about the secret recommendations that are being made to MI5, because many of them have had to be kept in a closed report, as has much of the detail of all of this due to national security concerns. And that's been a source of frustration for some of the families. They say there was less information than they wanted in this report yesterday. It was the third and final report of this long-running inquiry into what happened that night, into the attack, and the focus this time round was on the role of intelligence services, MI5 and counter-terrorism police. What could they have done? Could they have done more? And ultimately, it concluded, uh, came to the difficult uh, conclusion, really, the difficult truth, that if MI5 had responded differently to crucial intelligence and more swiftly, then there might have been a different outcome that night. They might have stopped the terrorist Salman Abedi from bombing Manchester Arena, killing 22 people, injuring hundreds more, many, of course, were children, the youngest mm. eight years old. And we heard very emotional statements, didn't we, from the families yesterday. A lot of frustration, a lot of anger, and a lot of sadness. Uh, in fact, many of them said that they will not rest until those that are responsible are brought to justice. Absolutely right. Thank you very much indeed. Holly Hudson, Talk TV's reporter, live uh, up there in Manchester following um, the report yesterday being published, which basically was 
and a terrible indictment on the security services. And as Richard Tice says, we know uh, that it's a tough job that they've got in the security services. They're always at any given time solving and, and stopping and preventing uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of terrorist attacks. I'm told that uh, in the same year they did actually thwart 30 terrorist attacks, 27 of those from Islamic terror groups. But let's talk now to Harry Miller, former police officer and founder of the Fair Cop Group. Harry, um, as well as um, the MI5 chief getting uh, going over, lots of the actual um, first responders as well uh, were told that they had failed in their uh, abilities to kind of sort the problem out. After the event, they could have got in quicker, they could have saved more lives. Um, once again, it's, it's a failing of the system. Yeah, the, the, the system has entirely failed, but it's geared up to fail, unfortunately, these days. If, if you look, for instance, just moving it slightly from Manchester into uh, what's happened this week in, uh, this last week in uh, near Wakefield at yes. Kettlethorpe High School, how is it possible that we can have a chief inspector sitting on a panel with a mad muller who all but puts a mother in the stocks and encourages people to throw vegetables at her right. because her son has inadvertently scuffed his own book at school. Yeah. This, this, is, this is the state that we're in. Our security services, our police force, and all the other uh, foundational institutions that which we rely on have got their priorities entirely wrong. This, what we saw, what we saw in West Yorkshire this week, is Sharia law by the back door. Yeah. Our, our emergency services are being paid off and are serving the highest bidder. Mm. In West Yorkshire, of course, it's the Muslim community. In Leicestershire, it's the LGBT community. In Essex, it's the BLM community. In North Yorkshire, it's the BLM community. We have a real serious Can I just ask, uh, I know this, this might be a stupid question, Harry, but can I just ask, where is it that the rest of us are actually protected by the police? Well, 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 we're not. We, we, we're not. We're absolutely not. Uh, we, we know for a fact that burglary, theft, so-called low-level crime is given no priority whatsoever. Because, of course, it's only low-level in their eyes. If you're the victim of a so-called low-level crime, like a mugging or a theft mm. or a burglary, or, or even having your car stolen, it feels like a violation. And it feels like a violation because it is a violation. And that's what we want our police force to be. When I see Matt Hancock, for instance, telling us, saying we need to get heavy with the police, yeah. what he means, of course, is he needs to encourage the police to get heavy with the public. Yes. Now, in what world is that an acceptable way for the government to behave? In what world is that an acceptable mm. relationship between the police, which are supposed to be independent and separate from the government? In what world is that okay? This worries me greatly. And I think Matt Hancock, I think that Boris Johnson, I think that everybody involved in that needs firing. Furthermore, they need locking up because we do not have a Stasi, a Cheka or a Gestapo in this country. Mm. But unfortunately, the way the government behaves certain ministers behave, is we're heading that way, Mike, yeah. if we're not there already. Well, this is why I say and have said all this week that these revelations from this WhatsApp uh, group of, of, of messages from Matt Hancock that Isabel Oakshot has uncovered is massively um, invigorating for democracy. It's incredibly uh, eye-opening for those of us who thought we knew the, how government worked, but also uh, confirmed the suspicions of many of us. I was certainly one person who thought that they were up to no good. Um, and so it now has been proven. And I, I, absolutely. And if, and if you think about it, let's take this down to a very personal 
level. Let's think about for one second Sarah Everard. Yeah. Would Sarah Everard have got into a police car for the crime of walking on the pavement in any other in any other in any other time? Yeah. She got into that police car because she believed that she committed the crime of going for a walk. Yes. And that is a direct result of Matt Hancock telling the police to get heavy with not lawbreakers, rule breakers. Yeah. And there needs to be a clear distinction between breaking the law and breaking the rules. The police are there to enforce the law. They are not there to enforce so-called top-down, government-led, non-democratic rules. That's the problem, Mike. I mean, it really is quite an extraordinary state of affairs when we have a police service that can't actually stop crime and doesn't appear to be interested in doing so, a border force that can't hold the borders up for uh, protection, uh, an NHS that doesn't actually have the capability to treat anybody who's unwell and would rather you didn't turn up at a hospital. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. Politicians that can't do their jobs. I mean, I asked an, uh, a cabinet minister a couple of weeks ago, is there any government department you can tell me that actually works efficiently? I don't think you can. No. Well, of course, we, we, not only do we have an incompetent government, we've also got an incompetent uh, opposition and an incompetent shadow cabinet. Yes. To that end, Faircott will be working with the, to, to, with the Together Declaration to form a shadow, shadow cabinet mm. in order to hold our government to account because somebody's got to do it, Mike. They they don't seem capable or willing to do it. They're all singing from the same hymn sheet mm. and we need an alternative voice and we're going to provide that. Yes, good. Well, I look forward to that. Harry, thank you very much indeed. Harry Miller, former police officer, founder of the Fair Cop Group, who do great work uh, protecting members of the public who do get picked on by the police. Because unfortunately, uh, as we have seen with this Manchester Arena uh, uh, report uh, and with many other things, particularly the lockdown files, the police simply are picking on the wrong people. Got a great um, uh, piece of uh, information handed to me here uh, from Dave, who's just uh, tweeted uh, um, an interview with Keir Starmer back in January 2022. Uh, Keir Starmer telling another radio station, I know Sue Gray, I know her personally. She has got huge integrity and huge respect. And of course, now she's about to join the Labour Party. Marvellous, isn't it? This is Talk TV. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. The home of common sense. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Don't forget, by the way, uh, if you ever miss any of the show, you can subscribe to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham podcast uh, so you never miss a moment from the show. Uh, just subscribe and download it now from wherever you get your podcast. It's all over the place. It's out there uh, and it's doing very, very well. And it's a very nice way, even if you've watched the show, uh, if you're getting in the car, you want to listen to something, you want to walk, go for a walk, uh, want to avoid the police at any point, just put the old earbuds in and listen to it uh, and you will have some great uh, pieces of entertainment and information uh, to impart at various points. Now, coming up uh, in this hour, we're going to be speaking about the Manchester Arena bomb inquiry because yesterday it was revealed that basically the failings all round from MI5 to the local emergency first responders uh, were so bad uh, that it could have, one, been prevented, but also, two, 
if it wasn't prevented, it could have had a much better outcome if the emergency services had actually responded properly. But one of the things um, that I was struck by yesterday was the emotion uh, and the language used by uh, some of the families of the victims. Because let's not forget, it was an Ariana Grande concert, so lots of the people who were there were young, lots of the people who died were children. And it was just absolutely awful. And the mother of one of the bombing victims, Liam Curry, made an emotional speech um, about the death of not only her, uh, her, her son, Liam, but also his 17-year-old girlfriend, Chloe. Absolutely horrendous. Let's have a listen to it. Nothing can bring Liam and Chloe back. Nothing. But we won't let them be forgotten. We have set up a charity in their names as a lasting legacy to show that from such absolute heartbreak, something positive can rise. We will continue to campaign to be allowed to register the personal detail on their death certificates. And we won't rest until all those who played a role in their deaths are brought to justice. That's uh, the mother of Manchester Arena bombing victim Liam Curry, who was killed alongside his 17-year-old girlfriend when suicide bomber Salman Abadi detonated his deadly device uh, in May 2017. Now, the MI5 organisation has been criticised for not doing enough to prevent this uh, terrible, terrible tragedy from happening. But also the emergency services at the time, as we heard Richard Tice talking about this morning, were very slow in reacting, uh, also were very slow in doing the right thing, getting to where the damage had been done because of their sort of rules about engagement and their health and safety operations. I mean, just extraordinary. But what we do know uh, is that MI5 does, in fact, foil an awful lot of these planned attacks. And we believe in that year alone, 2017, they foiled about 30 attacks, 27 of them planned uh, by Islamic extremists. Let's talk to Will Geddes now, uh, who's a security expert, of course, uh, a friend of the show. Will, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Um, a terrible story, this really. Um, many people will remember it happening. Uh, I remember being uh, at Talk Sport on the night that it happened. And the thing that I find staggering is, is not just that MI5 could have prevented it, but, but that the local, even um, sort of emergency services, just didn't go quickly enough to do what they should have been doing. Yeah, I mean, it was a catalogue of errors, Mike. There's, there's no uh, escaping that. And in terms of uh, the transparency that I think the Director General of uh, the Security Services has has offered, mm. I think, is is unprecedented, Mike. You know, a lot of this work is gone going on in the shadows. It's behind the scenes. And that's for very, very, very good reasons. You know, they don't want to give up their tradecraft, what they're currently doing to open source to the public domain, because inevitably, you know, we're working against a very insidious enemy in terms of terrorism. Uh, we don't want to give them any kind of step up or advantage in being able to foil their detection by the security services or counterterrorism police. No, exactly right. But we also know that in the context of, of what is going on broadly this week, that Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, actually criticised um, the, um, uh, the way that political correctness has kind of actually encouraged um, the growth of Islamic terrorism. Uh, Mike, you and I both agree. We've talked about this a lot. Uh, I think political correctness and wokeness is going to be the downfall of our society. It's going to be that obstacle that we're going to have to constantly try and overcome. And especially in groups like the security services, the prevent, um, you know, program and even the Metropolitan Police. You know, you look at 
the aspects of the referrals that are made uh, on a yearly basis. Only 3% of the referrals to prevent are by people known to the individual, the person of interest. And one's got a question, as they do and have done, certainly in the wake of this Manchester Arena uh, report, that Salman Abedi's family were very much collaborative. They were very much collusive with him. Uh, there was uh, allegations of their own uh, particular radicalization. And, and it's really down to the general public. And this reinforces that point that, sadly, security guys like me, time and time again, Mike, will say, the intervention and involvement by the general public is absolutely critical. The security services can only do so much. And mm. what we've seen from certainly some of the findings and some of their reveals of failings, that the mosaic of the joining up of various different pieces by the security services is a highly complex job. It really is. And, you know, obviously there are still people within MI5 that do their jobs properly and do them well. But you can't help thinking, can you, Will, to, to go back to those stories that we've been covering about how inside MI5 there was more focus on inclusivity uh, and making sure that people sending emails to each other put their pronouns on at the end and, you know, asking people if they were feeling comfortable enough in their jobs. And I mean, all of this absolute woke rubbish uh, that prevents people from actually doing what they should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and they've established certainly in that recent review of Prevent that a large proportion of Islamic extremist persons of interest were downscaled as targets because they felt that that could have been potentially deemed as politically incorrect. Equally, the security guard at Manchester Arena, who actually witnessed Salman Abedi in the in the moments before he detonated his device, didn't want to approach him because he felt that he could have been profiling him unfairly and he would be reprimanded for doing that. We need to have a proper wake up in this country. We've got to stop tolerating these idiots who are, are so triggered and, and unhappy about the ways that we need to be direct. The only way that we can deal with terrorism and with any threat for that matter is through directness, Mike. You know that. Absolutely right. Um How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And there was a lot of, um, of, of mention yesterday, was there not, of the Didsbury Mosque, um, which should have been under more surveillance, which should have been a clue, a massive clue, uh, to what Salman Abedi was down to, to be doing. Um, and yet, I'm not even sure that at this point in time, even after this inquiry, that that place uh, has been rendered, you know, safe, if you like. Yeah, I mean, it's like your previous guest, Mike. You know, there are various different areas which haven't integrated themselves into the UK, into the UK community at large. Uh, they are microcosms. And some of these microcosms, you know, are reassuring, obviously, for those individuals that have moved into this country. And we want everyone to feel safe. But they also afford that microcosm of individuals that are, are rattled with hate 
against the United Kingdom and want to exact their perverse course of justice against us. You know, we've got to break into these communities. And this is something you and I have talked about for many, many years, Mike. Mm. You know, it's about those communities also self-policing themselves. And that 3% to prevent is a case in point. They have to start making sure that if they want to be uh, integrating fully culturally with our country and with the United Kingdom, and I don't want to sound too radical here, but everybody's got to work together to keep us all collectively safe. Right. And also, as Suella Braverman said, you know, let's concentrate on finding um, the plots where they are. Let's not go looking for them where they aren't, because obviously there has been this kind of sense that many people, Prevent included, have looked at what they call the far right and said, oh, there's a lot of far right extremists. There's a growth in that sector. Well, yeah, maybe. But, you know, it may be growing from one to two uh, as opposed to from a thousand to four thousand. You know, the point is this. Of the 30 uh, plots that they foiled, apparently, in 2017, 27 of them, uh, that is by far and away the vast majority, uh, by the way, uh, 90%, I think we would say, um, were from Islamic groups. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of those were late stage plots. I mean, again, this comes down to intelligence and evidence. And for many cases, there are uh, times that have to be rolled on by the security services to allow a plot to develop, to get that sufficient evidence to achieve a successful prosecution and putting that person away behind bars. But there's also issues around the prisons and about visitors Mm. going in to meet Islamic extremists and being able to radicalize them from within. You know, there are so many different facets here to, again, without wishing to to, 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 to repeat myself, but that mosaic of, of intelligence to prevent these plots from happening. But it requires everybody injecting their contribution to that solution. Uh, but political correctness, Mike, uh, you know, I know this is a, a real sore point for you, but that is something we've really got to get over as an obstacle because Suella Bravman had made that a very clear point. And also this issue of correlation and causation of mental health and mental illness. I haven't seen it in the data, Mike. The vast majority of those involved in terrorism are usually the one commonality is criminality. It's not mental illness. Most people with mental illness don't want to cause any harm to anybody else. They're more likely to cause harm to themselves. Yeah, exactly right. And as far as the profile at the moment of the sort of your average um, uh, common garden terrorist in this country, is that the same as it always was? Has it changed any since the kind of um, the, 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 the breakdown of ISIS in, in the Middle East and, you know, the people who came back from there? No, you know, there is still the likelihood of a likely terrorist attack. We are still at substantial in the national threat level, Mike. You know, that, that threat prevails. The, the, the problem is for the security services, because it's a double-edged sword, is that they can't speak too much about what they're doing. Mm. And I know people within the security services, both um, MI5 and also in uh, MI6, in the secret intelligence services, these guys are working incredibly hard around the clock. You know, they get a lot of inquiries 10,000 or so, as I mentioned, uh, calls a year. Only 20% of those usually come to any value. So they've got to sift through all the lunatics and idiots who are calling up just trying to drop their mate in it Mm. or whatever it might be. Uh, So there's a massive, massive filtration process they've got to go through. Well, what we're seeing, and this is what's concerning about, obviously, some of these reveals by the Director General of MI5, is that the tradecraft is changing all the time. These, uh, These terrorists are not stupid and they will adapt and they will learn from TV, they'll learn from press releases, they'll learn from inquiries, they'll learn from anything and everywhere they can to evade detection. Yeah. Let's just have a look at Sir John uh, Saunders talking um, yesterday from MI5. He's the chief. I have found a significant missed opportunity 
to take action that might have prevented the attack. It is not possible to reach any conclusion on the balance of probabilities or to any other evidential standard as to whether the attack would have been prevented. However, there was a realistic possibility that actionable intelligence could have been obtained which might have led to actions preventing the attack. The reasons for this missed opportunity included a failure by the security service, in my view, to act swiftly enough. I mean, it's the one job they've really got, and it did result in a deadly, deadly outcome. Will, I mean, will MI5 change, do you think? Oh, they've changed hugely, Mike. I mean, we're now, what, five years down the line since, obviously, that particular horrific incident. Uh, they are constantly learning. Whenever anything happens, Mike, there are always a lessons learned exercise. They go through it with a fine tooth comb. And that just doesn't apply to the United Kingdom. It applies anywhere in the world. If some terrorist event takes place anywhere, there will be agents deployed to that location to speak with the local law enforcement, to speak with the intelligence services in that country to find out what they did right, what they did wrong, and what can we take away from that and apply to our own strategies. So, you know, they're constantly up against it. They don't have a, an infinite amount of resource. There is always going to be those that will slip through the net, and there's always that potential risk, Mike. But, you know, they, they've done incredibly well so far, as you've mentioned in some of the numbers of plots that they've foiled. You know, they've got to get that fine balance of who is a priority target at this particular time. But what they did uh, certainly admit to was the fact that Libya did not figure as a key target location. And that is something which, again, uh, that they are understandably berating themselves. And, and, and that's fair. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Very sad story but, and a very terrible outcome for the families uh, of those who were killed. 22 people murdered uh, by Salman Abedi, a horrible individual uh, who thought it was a good idea to blow himself up and kill some innocent people who had only wanted to go uh, to a musical concert. Just horrendous. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, uh, we're going to talk to our good friend Simon Calder. We're going to find out what's happening uh, on the travel front. Some rail strikes coming up this weekend, which, of course, many people will be used to. Many people won't care, but we do, because this is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, this is from uh, David who says, what a great show. I've been listening to Talk Radio for a few months now. What a fabulous platform Mike Graham provides. But it's sad that only Talk seems to do it. Uh, hearing Harry Miller from Fair Cop Group, fabulous input. Uh, will you two start a new political party? Well, I think Harry Miller's already involved in one, actually, but we'll talk more about that uh, coming up. Lots of you have got plenty of messages uh, of goodwill, of course, to Isabel Oakshot as well. We'll keep passing those on to her. Uh, Simon Calder, though, our favourite travel correspondent, our guru from The Independent uh, is with us now. I think he might even be wafting in from Luton Airport. Uh, if you remember that reference, Simon, you're obviously as old as I am. <laughs> Mike, great, great to talk to you. Uh, yes, uh, I, I, Paradise, Luton Airport. That was they it. are very easy to, com to um, confuse, I find. Yes. I'll tell you exactly where I am. And this is actually a historic day, Mike. I mean, I know every day that with the Independent well, Republic of Mike so Graham right. is historic. Yeah. But um, in particular, I'm here um, at the Luton Airport Parkway 
DART station. That yeah. stands for Direct Air Rail Transit. And anybody who, like me, has been Luton, using Luton Airport since the days of Lorraine Chase right. um, knows that it's a pretty miserable place to get to. You get off the train and then you've got to get a smelly old bus. We don't know how long it's going to take and everything. They've spent over £200 million um, building a smart new cable car which oh. races up the hill in two minutes 39 seconds now there's a bit of controversy because it costs four pounds 90 um for a ride which is only barely over a mile mm. um however it is going to transform things they hope and this is coming into effect from next friday mm. if you're lucky enough to be using lovely luton airport two till seven they're going to be testing yeah. it out you can use them, the normal old bus tickets, and then by the end of the month, it should come in and replace all those um, all those buses. Yeah, and make, I must uh, admit, I mean, I'm sure people listening and watching this will will have at least one story to tell about being a bit late for a plane and getting off at Luton Parkway, expecting there to be an airport there, when in fact it's quite a long way away, uh, and you can take another half an hour to get there. Uh, yes, and uh, many, many people will know exactly the feeling where train draws in, whether that's coming from Leicester in the north or yeah. coming from London in the south. You get off the train, you um, get to the uh, ticket barrier and you see the bus leaving for the airport with nobody on it. There's about 200 of you and you have to wait 10 minutes and all pile into the next yeah. bus. So these are going to be running hopefully every four minutes or so. Yes. And you, from central London, they reckon two departures should be about sort of 30, 35 minutes, yes. which is um, a lot better than it was. Although the other thing I suppose that's a bit confusing about getting to Luton Airport is I think you do not have to go from King's Cross if you're coming from London. And King's Cross Airport, uh, sorry, King's Cross uh, Railway Station to me is a bit of a difficult place to navigate at times, you know, because you get in there and it's so big. You don't really know where any of the platforms are. You know, it's, you, if you are travelling, and I'm, I'm not going to try and turn into you and give people travel advice, but if you're travelling from King's Cross, I would always advise you get there very early for your train because it's going to take you about 15 minutes to find it. Well, yeah, King's Cross is adjacent to St Pancras, which is the main station for getting to Luton. But, they're, they're, yes, the combined, they are a huge station. And it is very confusing because some of the trains to Luton are from platform one. Some of them go from uh, the basement in platforms A yeah. and B. And it's very difficult to work out which is which. But they're going to launch a new Luton Airport Express from St Pancras, which is going to be easier. Of course, you've also got Thamesic trains, which run direct from lovely places like um, uh, like Brighton and yes. Croydon through to Luton Airport. Black the idea is that uh, people will think... Black Friars, yes. People will think I'd love to um, uh, uh, fly in and out of Luton Airport. Um, and um, hopefully, well, it's not quite the same as Gatwick or Heathrow or Stansted in that you don't have a station right in the middle of the airport. But um, they're kind of getting there. Yes, I, I, I used to have some interesting experiences on the Thameslink trains because I used to live on uh, in North London near one of their stops. And I once fell asleep on the train and woke up in Hertfordshire. But there we are. Oh, uh, no. It was the last train as well. And I couldn't get back. My then wife no. was not happy. Uh, well, my goodness me. Um, uh, well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, actually, the trains now are sort of running 24 hours a, a day. So that's all rubbish. If no, no, I'm not. I'm not having that. I thought that most of them were on strike, aren't they, this weekend? 
Well, ah, oh, OK, right. We haven't got any strikes this weekend. Um, the strikes start properly um, 13 days from now on the 16th of March. We're back to the next round of national rail strikes. Um, we're going to see something like 80 percent of the trains on that day knocked out. There's going to be further strikes on the 18th, on the 30th of March, on the 1st of April. If you're foolish enough to try and travel on, on that uh, particular day, this is all the RMT. They're very upset. They want a pay rise without any conditions attached. Um, and uh, they're just jolly well going to carry on striking till they get that. But against this is against a wider context, Mike, in which the number of trains has actually plummeted. Mm. Um, they've lost about one fifth compared with pre-pandemic levels. Effectively, um, there aren't so many people travelling. Taxpayers would say, well, you don't need so many trains and they're not running. And of course, if you're living somewhere and it used to be an hour, a half hourly service, now it's only once an hour, you're going to kind of think, well, I'm not going to do that. Then I'll go by bus or car or whatever. And everything goes into a spiral of decline, which is the last thing we want. But that seems to be what's happening to the railways. Well, that seems to be what's happening to the country, actually. Spiral of decline is <laughs> a very good way of summing everything up. But yeah, I mean, it is very difficult to get trains these days. I mean, I, I speak as a father of a, a son who uh, has to take a train to go to work uh, in a pizza joint uh, in Hastings. And more often than not, the train is either cancelled or not running for some other reason. And it's really um, unreliable now, the train service in this country. Uh, yes, and I, I was looking at the figures. And, and uh, indeed, for the last three months of uh, 2022, um, anywhere in the country, you had a one in 30 chance that your train would be cancelled on the day, right. um, which isn't, you know, if you've got to get to work, that's simply not good enough. And on top of that, you had pre-cancellations, whether that was caused by strikes, staff shortage, whatever it was, um, they were running at about um, uh, 20%. So, um, yeah, a, a pretty unreliable service, mm. I'm afraid. And exactly at the time when you need to say to everybody, oh, it's really good, really reliable, really resilient mm. and um, good value too. But guess what? Um, on Sunday, Mike, the fares are going up by 5.9% because the service is so good. So who wouldn't want to pay a bit extra? I mean, this is the trouble. People say to me, look, I don't really mind paying a bit extra. I don't mind, you know, p prices of things going up a bit as long as the service is, is good or improved. But it's actually worse. Oh, sure. And that is a huge, huge problem. Um, and of course, the government is saying, well, 5.9%. Actually, that's not too bad at all, because mm. look at the overall level of inflation. We've, we've, we've protected the passengers. But I think the typical passenger who's stuck in the cold, waiting for a delayed or cancelled train is saying, this isn't really good enough. No. And um, with, with strikes still very, very frequent, and we will be going by April, we'll be into 11 months of strikes. Um, I, I don't have a car. I have to rely on the railways. And, um, well, it's a bit miserable. Um, and uh, if you've got a proper job, as opposed to me, like your son has, then um, it's, things are much, much worse. <laughs> it is difficult. And finally, Simon, what's the outlook for sort of Easter holidays? Because people will be looking at booking Easter holidays if they haven't done it already. Um, yeah. Any advice for people going anywhere in particular? Uh, well, it's going to be extremely expensive, of course, because the prices always go through the roof over Easter. If you want a bargain when you kind of get there, then Portugal's always going to be the place where you're going to get um, perhaps a bit better value for your spending money locally. Um, and if you want to go somewhere different, well, get a cheap flight possibly even from Luton Airport over to Poland. Beautiful cities, um, lovely Baltic coast. It's just that in April, it is still likely to be mm. a bit 
blimmin' Baltic. Yes, a bit Baltic indeed, and absolutely right. Good stuff, Simon. Thank you very much indeed. Simon Calder reporting in uh, from the brand spanking new cable car at Luton Airport. Anybody who's ever been through Luton Airport Parkway trying to get in a hurry to the airport will know what an absolute nightmare it used to be. Uh, now, for five quid or five pound ninety, uh, it'll be a lot quicker, which will be good. The only problem is, is the destination. Uh, once you leave Luton Airport Parkway, is Luton Airport itself, which is an absolute hellhole. Never mind. Uh, this is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots of people very, very angry with uh, Sadiq Khan and what he just said and what you've seen him just saying. We're going to be putting that out uh, on our social media platforms as well. Uh, this is from Jerry. Uh, Sadiq Khan has now demonstrated that he is not fit for public office. Hopefully he will be removed forthwith. Never heard such bigotry, a disgusting display from a disgusting man. And I mean, he really has overstepped the mark now. Uh, he's basically calling everybody uh, who disagrees uh, with him names. He's now saying that there's a far-right uh, conspiracy going on uh, of people who don't want the ULES plans to go ahead. Uh, he says that the people who make up the far-right include anti-vaxxers, um, anti-COVID deniers, uh, or COVID deniers, and Tories. Unbelievable. Uh, Dave says, I cannot believe the nasty lefty London mayor and his stereotyping of far-right being against ULES vaccines and COVID restrictions. Nasty little man. The mayor also complain, uh, proclaims refugees are welcome. Therefore, everyone in the hotel should be sent to London. Well, uh, I'm sure that that is the case. Anyway, Angela says this, I'm one of your far-right, anti-lockdown, anti-ULES, anti-COVID vaccine people you recently insulted. Although not at your question time, I fully support the protesters and think you should no longer be mayor of London. Labour should sack you. Well, I mean, as I say, the trouble with uh, little dictators is they eventually take too much uh, of, of everybody's time and try and take too much of everybody's land and try and take too much of everybody's goodwill. And I think long ago uh, he used all that up. I think it's absolutely disgraceful. We're going to talk to Jamie Jenkins in this hour because, of course, the lockdown files have fascinated him and repulsed him uh, in equal measure, I suspect. Uh, Britain's second lockdown, and we heard this already from our last uh, guest, Richard, uh, was based on very wrong COVID data. And Boris Johnson was worried about it. Let's find out from Jamie uh, precisely what's going on. Jamie, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. I think um, I wonder how many more people have just joined the far right from Sadiq's calm definition <laughs> in the last uh, 15 well, minutes. I think it's a lot of people that disagree with him, basically, isn't it? I mean, uh, and some I mean, this is the ridiculous thing about the way he operates is that, you know, people are now quite happily ident self-identifying as far right just to annoy him. Well, absolutely mental, Mike. But yeah, but going on to this story about the COVID aid, I think I obviously started coming on with you first, Mike, you know, many, many years ago. Yes. I was kind of looking at the data kind of in my role. I used to work at the ONS to look at the health stats and was come on with you quite regularly through the pandemic. And yeah. we were looking at the at the data at the time. And, and, and yeah, it's good to see, I suppose, with these um, these lockdown files that have been leaked. And remember, we're only seeing Matt Hancock's ones. I'd be interested to see, you know, what Boris Johnson's WhatsApp look like and Chris Whitty's because they would have been communicating amongst themselves outside of Matt Hancock yeah. as well. Whether or not we'll ever see that, Mike, is another question. But... But Boris is now, I think, going into this second lockdown, questioning the data, saying, oh, should we be going into kind of the lockdown? Have I been a bit hasty? I think that's kind of the upshot. And, and remember, Mike, when we had all these models that were going on predicting, you know, Armageddon, how many mm. deaths we were going to get, how many hospitalizations we were going to get. The problem you have there, Mike, is that if you do intervene and do something, you can't mark the homework. But what we then did is because Boris, I think, was getting a bit fed up as we got further and further into the pandemic. And what we had is that in September 21, 
Um, I think there were calls for Boris to bring in Plan B measures. We won't go into the detail about what there was, but it was more restrictions. And yes. they said, the Sage modelling said, Mike, if you don't do this, we'll have 3,000 hospitalizations a day. It never rose above 900. Boris didn't do anything and it never went above 900. And then in December 21, remember that Omicron variant hit and the government were told, if you don't go further again now, you're going to get 3,000 deaths per day. Mm. And they went about 200 per day, 93% lower, Mike. So you look at this modelling that was going on where we could mark the homework. It questions the whole thing. And, and to me, you know, the one thing, the, the biggest lesson we've got to learn from this pandemic, Mike, is the modelling was absolute yeah. nonsense. And well, exactly. major decisions were made off the back of it. Yeah. And also, you know, in my book, you don't get something 93% reduced without calling it wrong. So basically, it's not so much that the modelling was 93% less, uh, the actual people who number of people who died was 93% less. Their predictions were wrong. Simple as that. Oh, absolute, absolute nonsense, Mike, as well. You know, you, you put garbage into a model, you're going to get garbage out, yeah. and then you've got a question. You know, we've just seen one of the, the individuals working in SAGE who was part of the COVID modelling group promoted to beca become the new kind of chief scientific advisor replacing Patrick Valence. And, you know, this is the type of stuff, Mike, mm. you know, just a little sense check. And there were many, you know, scientists, mathematicians, modellers who were criticising this at the time, but they were kind of all shut out saying, oh, no, you can't be doing this, you can't be listening to them. And, and what we've seen, Mike, as well, is that every wave of COVID since we've kind of gone into this living with COVID kind of scenario, mm. the cases go up for about four, five, six weeks, and they naturally start coming down again. And yeah. the question is, would that have happened if we didn't have these lockdowns in the pandemic when we did have them? Right. Possibly that might have happened. Interesting. I mean, the tweet that you can see on the screen now, if you're watching us uh, on live TV, uh, is one from Boris Johnson in which, because Boris apparently, uh, this is back in November of 2020, at the beginning of the month, he was worried that he was plunging Britain into a second lockdown and he was being told that the scientists had said uh, the data was very wrong. So the scientists in this occasion actually were obviously telling him the truth. Um, but he was listening to other people, including his kind of media advisors. And you can see from this tweet uh, that they start, decide to start relying on polling to say to people, well, uh, it's ob obvious that more and more people want the lockdown to, to go ahead. More and more people want to be kept safe. And it was never more than 50-50 by the looks of it. Yeah, what we, we did have, Mike, especially early on in the pandemic, and I think Hancock and Cummins, when you look at these files, were kind of texting each other around some of the polling stuff. And they were, what the questions was, you Gov was asking, would you support another three weeks kind of national lockdown? I think this was in April 2020 at the time, Mike. And the, and the problem you've got there, Mike, is if you basically, you, you've had a press conference pretty much daily, everybody's saying, oh, there's so many deaths and deaths mm. have been going up here, and there's so many cases we might have. Of course, people might think, oh, well, let's have another three weeks lockdown. Imagine if the question was, um, would you allow the government to continue to have lockdowns for the next kind of several months and then another one at Christmas time and then further ones? And then, you know, things like we'll close um, kind of hospitality down quite a lot. We'll block aisles off supermarkets like we had in Wales. If the question was a bit more kind of blunt than asked that, I doubt they would have had the support that they've got. And, and I think one thing we've got to remember, Mike, with these lockdown files, there's a lot of talk about what the government were doing of the day. But I just want to remind the viewers and the listeners, on July the 7th, this is about two weeks now before um, Freedom Day in England, mm. Keir Starmer set up a Prime Minister's questions and he criticised Boris. He said he was reckless. He says the Sage Papers are kind of citing that we will have 100,000 cases per day. And he called Boris reckless. It didn't happen, Mike, when Boris, he went ahead. We didn't have 100,000 uh, cases a day. And I want to remind people, you know, that if Starmer was in power, 
you know, this is what we're looking at with the next election, potentially. We would have had harder lockdowns. There would have been longer lockdowns. And the irony and the hypocrisy of Starmer at that time, Mike, on July the 7th, he said that. And on July the 8th, he's in the registers, member of interests. You received free tickets for the Euro final to go and mix with loads of people at Wembley. Mm. You know, this is the hypocrisy of these yeah. politicians. Mike. Absolutely right. But also, I mean, the media as well have to play a role here because I, I seem to remember at every single one of those press conferences, you need to get the likes of Beth Rigby uh, and Robert Peston consistently asking questions about why lockdown wasn't uh, happening faster, why it wasn't going on longer, why it wasn't being made harder. Um, and I think at one point, Beth Rigby, and this was after she'd been caught out going to a party with Kay Burley, right, actually accused the Prime Minister of being reckless. She used that word. I remember it. Yeah, and Starmer used the word reckless than the media were doing. It was pretty much, Mike. I think when you talk about the kind of the messages that were, were going out across these you know, government officials and the ministers and the prime minister and the press, a lot of it was kind of driven by the media because they, the, the government obviously don't want criticism. And if Laura Koonsberg, Peston, Beth Rigby, they were all there, I remember at the time saying, yeah, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? They were already doing quite a lot of things that in hindsight, you probably think that was a bit too far. They were driving a lot of this, the media. And and journalists like yourself, I would have loved to have seen you in one of these press conferences. Yeah, I know we've got a sniff of it. They wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't invite me in there because they knew I'd ask them a proper question, you know. I mean, because it was absolutely extraordinary. And who can forget as well all of those graphs that Witty used to produce? And I mean, funnily enough, all of these lockdown files are kind of painting Witty uh, as a different person than the guy I remember because I remember Witty being quite misleading about some of his graphs that he put up because uh, some of the times he would show what looked like a big rise, um, he cut off the historical part, which would have shown actually it wasn't as big a rise as the one from the previous year. Yeah, there was a classic day, I think. It was a Saturday evening, Mike. It was you know live on the, live on the nation. I think they had to delay some stuff on the BBC for this kind of press conference. Mm. It was an emergency one, you know. If it's called on a Saturday evening, prime time, when they want to put some kind of game shows on, you know, it must have been a biggie. And and I remember watching him, right? And he was literally slide after slide. You yeah. remember the next, thing, slide, next slide, please? please next yeah. slide, please. And I'm a statistician, and I struggle to understand half of the stuff that they were presenting. Mm. I don't know if it was deliberate to confuse the population and scare the population into saying, yeah, we're going to have more measures. Yeah. But. Yeah, it was absolute carnage. And I was on with you, I think, the following week, right, criticising that at the time. And, and you're right. You know, and Whitty coming out saying there's, there was no strong argument for masks, no real strong argument against it, but let's go and do it anyway. You know, the government went ahead and did it anyway because they didn't want an argument with Nicola Sturgeon. You know, absolute scandalous, Mike, absolute scandal. No evidence, you don't do something. And that's the problem we've got here. Little evidence was used sometimes for big, big decisions. Yes. And as far as the... Um... Other findings that, that we've seen so far, and I'm sure there's going to be an awful lot more coming up as the, the days continue. Nick, um, uh, Isabel Oakeshott told me yesterday that you're going to see a lot more stuff about how individuals actually behaved and will, uh, how much further out of touch they are than we think they are. And I'm talking about people like Jacob Rees-Mogg asking for a testing kit, Helen Waitley asking for a testing kit for a member of a family. You know, They seem to be operating in this kind of bubble uh, where they think they're better than everybody else. Oh, no, in, indeed, Mike. You could just see that, obviously, with the Partygate scandal. The, I think the messages that were going out say about on people landing first class and then being shoved into a Premier Inn yeah. and, and, and when we had to these quarantines. Well, that was another one, wasn't it? I'd forgotten about. I mean, there's so much that I've forgotten about that you've reminded <laughs> me of there. There's the people that you know, I used to get calls from people who said, I've come into the airport. Uh, they basically put everybody from all the flights into one big room 
So the idea that we're being sort of quarantined is an absolute joke. Um, they were then put on buses with loads of people and taken to about 65 different, uh, you know, hotel destinations. And, and, and it was just totally and utterly mad. mad. Well, it was up at the madness. And, and again, Mike, it was costing people money. And you've got messages, you know, between senior civil servants kind of joking about it all. And, and it's an absolute travesty, Mike. And obviously, we've got the COVID inquiry going on at the moment. I do agree with people, we need to open up the books more, but much, much faster than what we're having with the COVID inquiry. And it, there's going to be some damning stuff. But let's not forget, Mike, as I said, you know, what you would think is if you had a government who was opposing some of this stuff, there would be a government in waiting to say, well, next time do a better job. We had a government in, in kind of mm. power and an opposition who would have gone even worse, Mike. So well, exactly. you know, it doesn't look bode well for the next election that you've got an incoming government potentially from the Labour Party where it would have been more shambolic than what it actually was. Yeah, absolutely right. Listen, Jamie, great. Got to run. Thank you very much indeed uh, for your help there. Um, Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, a bit of breaking news here for you. We'll give evidence to the Privileges Committee uh, in the week beginning March the 20th, um, so a couple of weeks from now, uh, on the inquiry into whether he lied to Parliament. You can't really believe this is still going on. Maybe we've got something better to do, for heaven's sake, like fix the economy or give us some tax breaks or do something to actually stimulate uh, the ability of people to work and keep more of their money. This is the news that's coming, of course, from the uh, Sue Gray inquiry. Yes, that's right. The same Sue Gray, who's now apparently going to go and join the Labour Party. On that front, Sir Keir Starmer has come out today and said that the Windsor framework is a great opportunity for us to work closely together with the European Union. <sighs> well, you would say that, wouldn't he? This is Talk TV. Talk Radio. Powered by common sense. Activated by opinion. Free speech radio. On the app, on your smart speaker and on the money. Talk Radio. Talk radio and talk TV. Clear-headed, honest opinion. Watch live on FreeSat Channel 217. On Apple TV and Samsung TV+. Plus. Listen live on DAB+. Ask your smart speaker to play talk TV. And get access to exclusive content by downloading the Talk TV mobile app. Available for free now from the App Store and Google Play. Talk radio and talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Um, how about this from uh, somebody called uh, Liam, I think. Those into power like the Mayor of London and government officials is that ring of safety they can't be removed unless a criminal act has been committed, which is the main problem. The public have no real power to do anything other than pay them to live beyond their means and beg for scraps. Well, we do actually have an ability to deselect somebody from a particular job. Sadiq Khan uh, won the race to be the mayor of London in the last election. I don't think he'll win the next one. He is standing again, but I absolutely do not think uh, that he will win the next election to be mayor of London for a third term. I really don't. Um, I don't know what uh, gives me that absolute and utter instinct, but it just does. I think he's gone too far. And he's upset too many people. Um, and even with the sort of weight of the Labour Party machine behind him, you know, I just don't think he's going to make it. Kay says this. Sue Gray, Mike, proves that civil servants have a conflict of interest which blocks a government to rule without menacing, overpowering civil servants. Leave these posturing, radicalised commies up the gantries, uh, but don't stop the traffic. Well, that's an interesting point because, of course, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, as a result of the Sue Gray investigation, uh, will give evidence to the Privileged Committee in the week beginning March the 20th into the inquiry uh, as to whether he lied to Parliament, right? 
Because at the time, of course, um, Sue Gray, whilst, while she's been doing this investigation, has been a senior civil servant, according to Keir Starmer, a woman of great integrity who he personally knows. Well, not only that, the woman who went, went into the Partygate investigation and ran the investigation, it now turns out, is going to go and work for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party, which can't be right, can it? 03444991000. Sue Gray is a typical civil servant with a Tory facade, but Labour roots. That's why the Tory government gets issues with civil servants, because their loyalties are absolutely and utterly divided. I mean... Incredible, isn't it? Brad in Cambridge says, Mike, is it just a coincidence that the Sue Gray story broke at the same time we have two massive stories dominating the news, the Manchester Inquiry and Hancock Gate, uh, providing great cover? Well, not really, because if they thought they were providing great cover, Brad, it wouldn't have ended up on the front page of the Daily Mail, which it did. Sometimes stories just come out. There's no hidden agenda going on. Sometimes they just come out. A lot of people were asking Isabel Oakeshott the other day, why have you waited until now to publish this stuff? Well, there's an obvious reason, because it took an awfully long time to the stuff to become um, digestible. Because if you've got over a million uh, words, which I think is what we're dealing with here, um, as Richard Tice told you, bigger than the Bible, um, an amount of, a cache of, of, of written um, evidence, which is from WhatsApp groups, right? Absolutely, completely and utterly in one big chunk. You have to water it down. You have to digest it. If you look at the number of people who've been working on this as a team at the Daily Telegraph, it's taken them a very long time to, to get through it all and to decipher it all. Let's talk to Peter Cardwell, who is, of course, Talk Radio's political editor. Peter, a very good afternoon to you. Hiya, Mike. Thanks for joining us. A um, couple of things, really. First of all, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson now to give evidence to the Privileges Committee uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, this is as a result of the Sue Gray investigation, I presume. Is it, ex- is it a surprise? Was it expected? Uh, yes, it was kind of expected. It's going to be on the 20th of March. This is actually not to do with the Sue Gray report. The Sue Gray report was something separate. This is the Privileges Committee in Parliament, a cross-party committee of MPs, and they've already put out some evidence on some questions that they're going to be asking Boris Johnson. And it's actually pretty damning. I'm just going to read from this. It's literally breaking news in the last couple of minutes. On the 1st of December 2021, Mr Johnson told the House, uh, this was when he was Prime Minister, all guidance was followed completely in number 10. The committee says we will consider why Mr Johnson told the House that no guidance had been broken in number 10 when he knew what the guidance was and was in attendance at gatherings where the guidance was breached and why he failed to tell the House about the gatherings at which he had been present. One extra thing, on the 8th of December, a week later, Mr Johnson told the House the guidance was followed and the rules were followed at all times. The committee says... We will consider why Mr Johnson told the House that no rules or guidance had been broken in number 10 when he knew what the rules and guidance were and was in attendance at gatherings where the rules and guidance were breached and why he failed to tell the House about the gatherings at which he had been present. Now that is pretty clear that the Privileges Committee, this cross-party committee of MPs, is accusing Boris Johnson of lying. Now if he is lying to, if he has been found to be lying to the House of Commons, well, he could be suspended. That's up to the Speaker. But he could be suspended from the House of Commons. And certainly in the modern era, that would be the first former Prime Minister suspended from the House of Commons, even for a few days. Mm. That would be pretty unprecedented. Yes. I mean, I suppose the last time he was accused of lying, before this committee met and before he was called to appear before it, um, he, the word deliberately misled was used, wasn't it? So he was able yes. to hide behind that and say that he did not deliberately mislead. Um, so can he do the same thing here and say he only lied by accident? 
Well, in theory, but the committee is already saying before actually uh, interviewing him, which they'll do in a couple of weeks' time, they're saying that he knew what the guidance was, yet told the parliament otherwise. I mean, maybe he forgot. Um, maybe he'll say there's another excuse. But certainly what they are saying in this publication that's just come out in the last few minutes, they're saying Boris Johnson essentially knowingly lied mm. to Parliament. And that is a very, very serious allegation, which could have some very yeah. serious consequences I mean, for the former Prime Minister. And I suppose there still is a, a Sue Gray connection to this, because presumably the committee will be using the Sue Gray report as evidence of what happened inside of Downing Street, uh, which he didn't tell people about. Yes, indeed, they'll be taking that as evidence. Now, what's interesting, there's a lot of people who criticised Sue Gray in the last 24 hours, but at no point, I mean, this may well have been the case, I might just have missed it, but there don't appear to be people who are saying the things that she said in her report factually are wrong. Right. They're criticising certain her motivations, what she's doing. She's now obviously a Labour person and so on. Some people like Nadine Dorries, Jacob Rees-Mogg say her report was a stitch-up, but they're not saying why. They're not saying what she's got wrong in this. And the Privileges Committee will be taking all sorts of bits of evidence, all sort of oral evidence, written evidence, uh, certainly evidence from individual people, including Boris Johnson in a couple of weeks' time. But if they're finding this already, this will be absolutely box office in terms of his uh, evidence to that committee and what possible excuse he could have when they're already saying that he knowingly lied to the House of Parliament. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, when any, whenever he appears before any parliamentary committee, it's always worth watching because uh, uh, it's always um, uh, quite a spectacle one way and another. Uh, but I think the fact that, that, that you're, and you're right to say that nobody's criticising Sue Gray's report, but the fact that she is now apparently going to go and work for Keir Starmer as a Labour employee, an apparatchik, if you like, an advisor uh, to uh, the opposition leader. I mean, it's not great timing, is it? Well, it's his most senior advisor, certainly, and she's shown her colours as a Labour person. Now, I know Sue Gray. I worked with Sue Gray. I never got any sense that she was a Labour person or a Conservative person. She was simply a very hardworking and very good civil servant. But certainly, she must have been having conversations with Keir Starmer for months, yeah. and she would have been privy to all sorts of information, including secret information, including uh, intelligence, including things like uh, the the, the uh, negotiations of the Brexit deal. There's no suggestion, obviously, that she would have been leaking that to the Labour Party, but it does raise questions about who knew what when. And I think ACOBA, the, government, the uh, civil service committee, which she previously kind of ruled on a lot of their rulings and advised the Prime Minister, that will now be looking into her and in terms of how long this was going on and whether she breached that and also how long a break she'll need yes. between being a civil servant and taking up her job with Keir Starmer. Yes, I'm told that uh, Rishi Sunak could make that break two years, which might make he, life a bit difficult for her to join him. Hypothetically, yes, he could. He's within his rights to do so, but it would look very bad for him politically if he did so. Yes, indeed. Finally, um, one other thing just to catch up on. Apparently on Monday, uh, we're being told that Rishi Sunak may be bringing the new um, anti-illegal migrant uh, type of legislation to Parliament to present uh, the new laws that he wants to put in, put in place to stop people coming here illegally. Um, any ideas on that yet or is it too soon to tell? Well, this is one of his five pledges, a major piece of legislation coming. He's essentially saying he's going to stop the boats. That is what he has pledged to do. Yeah. I was talking to a very senior advisor in Number 10 who's working on this this week. And I don't know many details about it, but I know it'll be a strong and interesting piece of legislation. No doubt we'll be talking about a lot on Talk TV next week. Yes, absolutely right. Peter, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. You've got a show coming up this weekend, uh, I'm sure. Uh, we'll be seeing Peter over the course of Saturday and Sunday and, of course, through the rest of the day right here uh, on Talk TV. A um, couple of breaking news stories for you. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson will give evidence at the Privileges Committee uh, in the week beginning March the 20th. Um, 
Boris Johnson, as we all know, is pretty good at wriggling around um, and not actually admitting to doing anything. So it'll be fascinating to see how he's going to get away with this one. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if he does, to be honest. And the Partygate investigation um, continues, of course. Sue Gray uh, is still in charge of that, as far as we know. Uh, but now she wants to go and work for the Labour Party. What do you make of that? 0344 499 or 1000 is the number. Coming up, uh, we're going to talk to LaDonna Harvey in the US of A. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.